Last time we went into Ezekiel 9 and 10, and I, I want to go back just for a moment and a brief review to show that primarily the context of time, because that will make some difference in helping us understand chapters 11 and 12, and that is that just before the destruction was to come, in chapter 9, verse 4, it talked about going through the midst of Jerusalem and putting God's mark upon his people, as opposed to what we saw in Revelation, where the beast would put his mark upon his people, which is most of the world, and that they were to begin at his sanctuary, or at God's place, and with the ancient men or the elders. So, the marking of God's people would be upon those who sigh and cry for the abominations that are in our culture and our society, and then he was to slay utterly the old and young in verse 6, beginning with the elders. So he's going to hold the ministry first and foremost responsible for what is about to come on the world and upon the church, because 90% of the church is going to go into the tribulation with the world. Verse 8, Ezekiel wondered whether he would destroy even the residue of Israel. This was such a dire pronouncement, such a heavy prophecy on Israel that he's afraid it would all be wiped out. Then in chapter 10, we see again the portable throne of Christ and uh, the glory that was with it. And it reminded me of the last verse of, I think it's Zechariah 2, which says, Rise, O Lord, and begin to get the work done, the work of the end time, where he would actively begin to take apart, and some dramatic things would begin to happen. And all through this first part of Ezekiel, we have references here and there to the portable throne of Christ, to the cherubims with flames of fire, and a heavenly display, in other words, something that becomes obvious that there is power there. Of course, along with marking those that the beast marks as his own, the beast begins in the book of Revelation to do great signs and wonders and miracles himself, the beast and the false prophet. So when God arises to do a dramatic work at the end of the age, Satan also begins a dramatic work. Therefore, it is going to be very, very difficult for all people, including God's people, to grasp the difference that even the very elect would be deceived, if it were possible. So Satan is going to put on a very powerful display. And even we who understand the truth, I'm not saying we're the very elect. Some people claim that, but I don't feel very elect most of the time. But even those who understand could very easily be deceived, because it will be such a dramatic powerful thing that Satan puts on. He certainly does have power. So, we see this kind of a dramatic exhibition that is revealed in vision to Ezekiel. And with that in mind, that this is indeed an end-time prophecy, let's begin with chapter 11. So, he's talking here about the portable throne of Christ and how the spirit of the living creature was in them in verse 17. And with that, he transitions into chapter 11 by using the word, moreover, or in addition to, what I have just seen, here's something else. 
that needs to be seen and said. Moreover, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the east gate of the Lord's house, which looked eastward. Now, remember when this happened, he was on the river Kibar in the land of the Chaldeans, being a part of what had been the captivity. This is following the time, the 70 years was up, and some Israelites had already left, but Ezekiel was apparently still there. So he was not taken physically, most likely, but he was lifted up in the spirit, uh, in vision, and brought me to the east gate of the Eternal's house, which looks eastward. Make sure you understand it is the east gate. Uh, and behold, at the door of the gate, twenty-five men, among them whom I saw, Jazaniah, the son of Azur, and Pelatiah, the son of Benaiah, princes of the people. Why is that in there? Does that make any sense? It's just a bunch of strange names to me, isn't it to you? You ever hear anybody name that? No? It was translated from Hebrew into English. And it may have lost something in the translation because the meaning of the names is not there. They're just strange-looking names to us. So, why is it there? Why is this included? Is there any meaning to it? Now, the east gate was the primary gate and where Christ will return at the east gate. And it mentions that twice in this verse. Now, 25 men. Why 25 men? Well, among the priesthood, there were 24 courses. So you had the leaders of 24 courses of the priesthood, and then you had the high priest. That would be a total of 25 men. Now, we just reviewed that he said, start at the sanctuary and begin with the ancient men or the elders, in other words, the priests, or in modern parlance, the ministry. So here at the gate of the temple, the temple meaning church, this is an end-time prophecy right at the end of the age when God is setting his mark in the forehead and the beast is setting his mark in the forehead. That's the reason I reviewed. Let's get the time setting here. This is talking about the end-time ministry. It is not talking about the ancient Levitical priesthood. Ezekiel's prophecy all has to do with the end-time. All captivities of Israel that have occurred in the past, had occurred by the time Ezekiel wrote this. So the only captivity that could possibly be mentioned here is the end-time captivity and the end-time church, the end-time ministry. Notice that he included the whole thing. All the churches of God, all the temple of the Lord, all 24 courses is the type or the symbol used. And those who would be the high priests, or we might uh, interpret that to say those who would be the only apostle or the leading evangelist or that prophet or whatever title they might proclaim to people as being theirs. The only church, the only true one, maybe. Uh, it's easy to do that. Now, do we do the same thing? No, we do not. In fact, we believe 
that God's true people are scattered through all the organizations. That there is not any one organization that comprises the Philadelphia Church or the only fair virgin or whatever, but that God's faithful, true people are scattered throughout the splinters of the church. They will be gathered together, and they will become the latter temple, and they will outshine in spiritual value that which came before. But right now, that is in no way obvious, and we should be able to see that we ourselves fall far short of the mark in living the way we should be and being what we ought to be. Now, I don't mean that to discourage us. I think that we do have enough understanding that maybe we're headed in the right direction. And that's what counts. That's what's important. That we be in the process of repenting and changing and growing. But let's notice, now that he's addressed these 25 men, and he mentions among whom I saw, and he only mentions two names and their fathers. Let's look at the meanings of those and see if that doesn't make this scripture a lot clearer. Among, among whom I saw, Jezaniah, and his, his name means God hears. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Uh, he's the son of Azur, which, mean, which means help. And Pelatiah, which means God delivers. The son of Benaiah, which means God builds, princes of the people. Now, so far, those names sound pretty good, don't they? Is this a prophecy that is positive and foretells good? Question mark. Let's continue to examine. These are called princes of the people. Uh, or the leading priests. We can tie a couple of scriptures in here. I don't think I'll go there necessarily for sake, for sake of time, but Second Chronicles 36.14, you can check out, where the priests are called princes of the sanctuary. That type of terminology is also used in Isaiah 43.28. So, it, this isn't necessarily civil princes, but even the Bible itself shows that the priests are equal to, in that sense, princes or leaders of the people, but here, in terms of the temple or the church, it would be speaking of the ministry. Then said he to me, let's see if this is positive, and if it is not, how so? Because it sounds good so far. I mean, we all, when we, haven't you ever looked up your name? Or a lot of people will go to the book of names and their meanings before they name their children to pick out something that really sounds good and, and would be positive instead of something like Judas. You know, we, we don't want to name our kids something that are really bad, so we'll look up the little book of names, and everybody has them when they have little babies coming. Because you want it to be good. And these names all sound good. Then said he to me, Son of man, these are the men that devise mischief and give wicked counsel in this city. Whoa! Wait a minute here. The names sound good, but these aren't good men. Now, in the church today, do we have people who stand for good, and maybe their names sound good, and the titles they take to themselves sound good? But is that an illusion? And we'll let the Bible interpret this and see what's the apparent contradiction here, because there is an explanation. 
which say. Now, these are men who devise wrong things to say and that actually give bad counsel. And they're the leading ministry today. Okay? We've established that much. Let's go on. Which say, it is not near. Let us build houses. Now, there were those, if you go back to Jeremiah, who did not want to build houses, and Jeremiah said, go ahead and build houses. And here it says that it's bad to say it's not near, let's build houses. That sounds like a contradiction in itself. However, Jeremiah was writing at the beginning of the 70-year captivity, and he told them at that time, it's going to be a long captivity, go ahead, build houses, establish families, you're going to be here for a long, long time. Seventy years is a long time. It's a lifetime for most people. Jeremiah, I mean, Ezekiel was writing some 140, 50 years later. And the captivity was already over, according to historians who date the time this was written. And people had already gone back to Jerusalem. And he was still among those who had remained in the land of Babylon where the captivity occurred. So there will be those, when it becomes near, who will say it is not near, we have quite a while left. And they'll say, this city is the cauldron and we be the flesh. Now to me that sounds like, just to read it, it sounds like a contradiction. They'll say, it's not near, let's build houses. And then they say, there's a big pot, and we're the flesh. And when you picture that, you think, I would not want to be in a big pot on a fire and be meat. But it's actually a positive statement when you understand the metaphor here. It does fit. They say, we got time, let's build houses. And what that means is, a pot is set on the fire to protect the food that is cooking. In other words, if you threw the meat right on the fire, what would it do? It would burn up, be charred, and be worthless to eat. So they're saying that the pot, which is an analogy of the city of Jerusalem, is protecting us from the flames. We be the meat. We be the good part. When you sit down to eat, what do you want? You want to dip in the pot and take out well-cooked good meat to eat. So, Jerusalem is a type of the church. And they say, we're in the church. There's fire all around us, perhaps. But we be the meat. We be the good part in the pot. That's what the analogy means. We'll see that God uses that analogy against them. All right. He's saying, these are wicked men who will give you bad counsel. And they're saying, everything's secure, we're in the church, we're all right. Okay? As long as we're in the church, we're okay. Therefore, or as a result of that very attitude, God says, prophesy against them, prophesy, O son of man. In other words, he emphasizes, let it be known. Don't just say it. But say it. 
emphasize it. All right, here's what is to be emphasized then. And the Spirit of the Eternal fell upon me. That's a stronger term than he used in verse 1, where it says the Spirit lifted me up. There are other places, you go back to Ezekiel 2.2, 2, or 3.2, or 3.24, and it says the Spirit entered into me. Here it says, the Spirit of the Eternal fell upon me. So he says, prophesy twice, which is for emphasis, and then it says, the Spirit of God really bounced off my head, if you will, and said to me, speak, emphatically. Thus says the Eternal, not the words of Ezekiel, but the Spirit of God laid it on him to say, this is what God says. Now, these men say, we're in the church, we're okay, it's safe. God has something else to say. Thus have you said, O house of Israel, for I know the things that come into your mind, every one of them. They think they're safe and secure, and God knows they're thinking that. We're rich and increased with goods. We have everything we need. We're the Philadelphians. <laughs> okay. You have multiplied your slain in this city, and you have filled the streets thereof with the slain. He's not talking to the nation here. He's talking to the church. I mean, he addressed it as the temple of God. There are those who are spiritually slain and dead and dying all throughout the church today. Some have already turned loose and given up the ghost spiritually. Some are barely alive. Some are walking away. Very few are clinging with all their heart, to the ways of God. Precious few. God says, I know what your attitudes are. And I see the dead and dying, those I've called. Verse 7, Therefore, thus says the eternal God, your slain, whom you have laid in the midst of it. Now, remember here, he's addressing the ministry and the leading ministry, if you will. They are the ones he holds responsible. If you don't believe it, flip on ahead and read Ezekiel 34. And go back and read Jeremiah 23. And read Malachi 1, 2, and 3. He lays it very heavily on the ministry. And he's doing the same thing here he does in chapter 34. And we'll get there in time. I will not go there now. Because it just emphasizes it even more. You're slain, whom you, the ministry, have laid in the midst of it. They are the flesh, and this city is the cauldron. Indeed, you do have a pot of meat here. And these are people that I've chosen for meat for myself, for food for God, if you will. These are my people. Okay? But it's the cooks who are in trouble. Well, the people are in trouble too, but it's the cooks that God is holding most responsible here. But I will bring you forth out of the midst of it. Now, that, does that sound like delivery? Well, it does when you just read it and stop there. You're, you're the cauldron. The church is the pot 
that should provide safety from the fire, and you're the meat that's in it, the good part, but you're giving bad counsel and wicked advice. And I'll bring you forth out of the midst of it. Well, if you take it out of the pot, normally you'd take it out and put it on your plate to eat. But is that what God says? You have feared the sword. I will bring a sword upon you, says the eternal God. I'll take you out of the pot and skewer you. Shish kebab. A shish kebab church. Where do you roast the shish kebab? In the fire. I'm going to take you out of the pot and throw you in the fire, is what God is saying here in this metaphor. Have we feared the sword? We as a church, for decades, have been concerned about when the sword would come upon this nation and when it would go into captivity and would we be protected and could we go to, as we termed it then, Petra, to a place of safety, or would we be in the middle of it? That's what this is talking about. So God is saying to the leadership, and therefore the meat that the cooks or the ministry are working with are going to be taken out of the pot and given to the sword. And I will bring you out of the midst thereof, and deliver you into the hands of strangers, and will execute judgments against you. What do we see building up right now in the world? This is close. It's not far off. There's not time to build a bunch of houses and settle down and have kids and think you're going to live a normal life. Not going to happen. Even now, those who have built houses and are building bigger and bigger houses all around the country are seeing... The housing burble beginning to bust. The bubble beginning to burst. I'll get it right. It's falling apart in front of our very eyes. And the society they built up that they thought is going to last for a good while is going to go down. I think that's why God brought us out here to live in little old trailer houses and things that we barely could afford or couldn't afford or Maybe did afford, but temporary dwellings, because this thing is close. We don't have a lot of time in this country that is left. So I'll bring a sword upon you, and I will bring you out of the midst thereof, and deliver you into the hands of strangers. Oh, I was going to say, right now we have more and more nations that are becoming very unfriendly toward America. And a coalition against America is being formed. I think the catalyst is going to be when we go into Iran and do our thing there and break their horn. If I read Daniel 8 properly and understand it, we'll have our horn broken as the next big event on earth. Two big events right in front of us. They're talking seriously about going into Iran and planning it and sending carriers there now. Probably will not be too many months before we invade Iran. And it probably won't be too long after that that the world is upset and decides America should not be there anymore. So he'll deliver us into the hands of strangers. I said this is talking about the church. It is. But 90% of the church is going to go into the hands of strangers as well. So... 
It's talking to the church, and what it's saying is, this destruction is coming, and most of you are going to go into it with them. And we'll execute judgments among you. God's judgment of evil and wickedness is pretty severe. We read about it in many, many scriptures. You shall fall by the sword. They will judge you in the border of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Eternal. How many times has that expression been used already in Ezekiel? We're only in chapter 11, and it will be used several more times in chapter 11. God is going to make it known that he is God. The church and the world. But he's addressing, first of all, the church here. So it's not just going to be in the city, in the church, but I'll judge you in the whole border of Israel, throughout the country, from border to border. This city shall not be your cauldron. (laughs) It won't be your safe place to keep the meat from burning. Neither shall you be the flesh in the midst thereof. But I will judge you in the border of Israel. Don't think that you can sit in the church, in the pot, and be the cooking meat with a good aroma that God wants to eat thereof. And I'll take you out of the pot, and I'll throw you out. And you'll be judged along with the rest of Israel from border to border. This explains that expression that we read in verse 3 that didn't sound too bad. So they say, we've got plenty of time. Let's build houses. We're safe in the church. We'll build church houses. We'll start colleges. We'll start imperial schools over again. We'll do the work of Herbert Armstrong. Whatever expression they use. We'll preach the gospel around the world as a witness. No, you won't. You may start. You may try. But God will throw you out of the pot, and it won't happen. Now, this says that this is very close. Right at the end, when things are about to become dramatic with God. Let's read on and see if that thought is not brought out. Verse 12, And you shall know that I am the eternal. He uses that so often, he must be trying to get a point across. For you have not walked in my statutes, neither executed my judgments, but have done after the manners of the heathen that are round about you. Yahweh in the church, we keep the Sabbath, we keep the holy days. But when it comes to our culture and society, we basically do the things of the world. We're plugged into their electronics. We're plugged into their cultural things, their clothes, their movies, their music, their food. You name it. We may keep the Sabbath. We may keep the peace. But culturally, we're about the same in the church. You know, when the plagues walk into Walmart, you know who they are, don't you? When the Amish, if they walk into a store, walk into a store, you know who they are, don't you? When God's people walk in, can you tell the difference? 
When they dress to go to town to shop, do they look any different than the women who are shopping there? Do their faces reflect any difference? I'm not saying we ought to wear little uniforms that say Worldwide or Church of God across the front. But I know even in times past, when the church was decidedly different than the world in some respects, you could look at somebody walking in a store and you could tell a difference. But most of the churches have blended now to where it would be hard to pick between them by the way they dress and the way they look. And I don't mean to pick on the women here necessarily. Just a couple of a couple of thoughts that came to mind that are pretty obvious. But you know, do we walk down the street with that rotten music plugged in our ear, looking just like the rest of them? Do we pull up to a stop sign and have the car next door shaking because of the music we're listening to? about fornication and adultery and cheating and drinking too much. It doesn't matter whether it's rock or country or whatever it is. It's all the same thing. Now, you can find some there that may just be love songs without sin involved. And it may be decent music. So I'm not knocking all music here. I think would be better, for the most part, with music that is cited toward or about God, for the most part, but it's not wrong for husbands and wives to be in love and to have love songs, if that's indeed what they are. But how much different do we look? How much different do we act? How much differently do we talk from the world around us? Do we do after the manners of the heathen that are around, around about us? Is there any difference, really? And it came to pass when I prophesied that Pelopiel, the son of Benaiah, died. Ah, now we're beginning to get an explanation of the names of these people. Let's go back for a moment. Uh, Pelatiah meant God delivers. His dad's name, Benaniah, meant God builds. Well, then it turns into a very negative prophecy, and the guy that stood for God delivers and God builds dies. In other words, God's deliverance and God building in the church stops. It dies. So even though these men may have been a part of the church, the leaders of the church are part of the church of God. And remember Revelation 2 and 3, some of the ringing indictments against Attitudes in the church today, because Revelation 2 and 3 is all about today, all those churches. Some pretty bad things said about some of them. That's why everybody wants to be a Philadelphia, because they think they might have problems. But it tells them, even, even them, it says, to him that overcomes, will I grant to sit with me in my kingdom. See, if you place the label Philadelphian on yourself, you think you're A-OK because it doesn't say anything negative. Well, it does say overcome, so you must have some problems. But they tend to think 
because they have selected that name for themselves, and that shouldn't they, because after all, that is the best of the lot. So that's what you want to be, so you assume automatically that's what you are. That means there's not much introspection. There's not much honesty. So God delivering and God building in the church dies. In this analogy, then fell I down upon my face and cried with a loud voice and said, Oh, eternal God, will you make a full end of the remnant of Israel or the church? And he understood Hebrew. And he knew what this man's name meant. So when that man died, he said, man, this has been a nasty prophecy so far, but are you going to kill us all? Are we all going to die? Are you going to quit delivering entirely? Are you going to quit building the church completely? Even the last 10%. The remnant. Is anyone saved? Again, verse 14, the word of the eternal came to me saying, Son of man, your brethren, even your brethren, the men of your kindred, and all the house of Israel totally. I looked this up in the commentaries to see if they could shed any light on it. And it says, Son of man, thy brethren, even thy brethren, is stronger than just people you know or your physical brother or whatever it might be. But what it means is by saying, brethren, even your brethren, is the ones that are really close, the ones who should help you, aren't doing. They're not giving you the straight scoop. They're lying and deciding things to do that really aren't of God, even though they sound like they are of God. You see, God and Herbert Armstrong completed the job of calling. And Herbert Armstrong recognized that and said, my job is finished, now get the church ready. Most of the ministry, the so-called leaders, didn't hear that. Didn't hear it at all. I mean, it was said, but they didn't hear it. So they went on trying to do a big calling work, and it's falling flat. It's not happening. So those who should be giving you the right answers aren't. They're saying, you're my group, we're doing the work, you're safe. That's a lie. It's a lie. Your kindred, or literally in the Hebrews, or Hebrew, redemption. Those who should be helping you toward being redeemed of the Lamb, being redeemed from the earth of God aren't giving you the answer that they should. And all the house of Israel, totally, are they to whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said. Now, they're saying of the leaders, they're saying of those who should be helping, all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, that is, the members of the church, have said, get you far from the eternal, unto us is this land given in possession. Now, is anyone in the church saying, get you far from the eternal? No, they're not really saying that. 
But now, let's understand, where is the church? The church worldwide has gone back into the captivity of the world. And the rest of the church has been scattered in the world. And in that sense, we have been in captivity. We've been in the clutches of the world. So what they're saying here is, Lord, we are secure in the city. We're secure in the church. And this is said, perhaps skeptically, Get you far from the Lord, unto us is this land given in possession. In other words, you are far away from God if you're not in our group, but we're the ones that are safe in the city or the church. That's the actual meaning of this. It's, it's a little awkward in the English. You're far from God, we have him. Therefore, and this will make that sound true when we read it, as a result of the attitude they have, therefore say, thus says the eternal God, although I have cast them far off among the heathen, and although I have scattered them among the peoples or countries. So God is saying, yes, I've scattered the church. That's what's happened. Yet will I be to them as a little or a short Time period is the Hebrew here. A little sanctuary in the countries where they shall come. So God says, yes, I scattered the church. It's not safe. But I will gather a small remnant. This ties in with Haggai and many, many other scriptures. Isaiah 1 about a small remnant and so on. A remnant is mentioned over and over. I'll be a sanctuary for a short time in the countries where they shall come. I'll be a, cap, a help to the captives who repent, in other words. Therefore say, thus says the eternal God, I will even, even gather you from the people and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. So God says, I will. Even though when Pelatiah died, Ezekiel thought, oh man, he's going to kill us all. <laughs> and God says, no. There are those who say they're safe in the church, and they're saying that you're far away, and you're out on a limb. Isn't that where the fruit is? We are safe, and you're not. But God says he will look all through the countries where we've been scattered and begin to say, I will draw you out, and I will be a sanctuary to you for a short while, and you will inherit the land of Israel. Aren't those who are faithful the ones that are going to inherit and rule it as kings and priests in the world tomorrow? And then you also have the 10% physical remnant of Israel who are saved to go into the millennium to repopulate the land. Verse 18, And they shall come there, and they shall take away all the detestable things thereof, and all the abominations thereof from there. So, all the part of the church that looks like the world, acts like the world, will be taken away. We've flipped on over to Ezekiel 16. He emphasizes this even more there. Spends a whole chapter on it. 
where he starts out the chapter by saying, you're Israel? You look like your father and your mother were Hittites and Hivites, or whichever nations he uses. You just look like Gentiles to me. I can't tell you from the world. That should give us pause to think. How do I think like, look like, and act like the world? When I'm sick, what do I do? When I go to buy groceries, what do I buy? When I buy clothes, what kind do I buy? Am I being modest? When I listen to music, do I listen to something uplifting that will create good attitudes? Or do I listen to downer junk? What is it? Does the music I listen to stir things inside me that maybe shouldn't be there? Does it bring out the worst? Does it bring out emotions that aren't good and don't lead toward obedience to God, but that they lead somewhere else? You have to get rid of the detestable and the abominable things. We've got to be humbled, in other words, become meek and repentant. And then what happens? Once we get that attitude, what happens? We get the abominations out of the church. Get rid of the wrong attitudes. Verse 19, I will give them one heart, one way of thinking. And I will put a new spirit within you. New attitude, new approach. And I will take the stony heart out of their flesh. The hard, the rebellious, selfish, the greedy heart out. And I will give them a heart of flesh. Do you want the heart of flesh? The the human heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. That's not the analogy he's using here. What he means by a heart of flesh is one that's tender, one that is humble, not one that is rebellious and resistant, and nobody's going to tell me what to do or how I should live. Well, God's telling us here. Even I may be the one that has to say it, or read it to you and explain it, so that we get it a little better, but it's God that's saying it. He'll take away that which is proud and rebellious. And give us a tender, humble, meek spirit and attitude of being willing to serve, give, help, do whatever we can. We're here to sit and entertain ourselves, or we're here to do something. I hope we have not and do not lose that when we first came out to this place, those of us who are here. We were here to work, whether it was cold or windy or whatever. Have we lost that spirit of service? Are we now content to sit in our warm homes and let somebody else do the work? Or are we serving and giving and helpful? God wants us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice to get it out there, to sacrifice to do for others. We're here, I think, as a preparation crew for others to come. What do we need to do to get it ready? Is it ready? 
it's getting close? I don't know. Maybe. But what needs to be done to finish it? So that when they come, we'll be able to serve and help them instead of saying, well, you know, wait, wait in the street there. I've got something here I need to do first. I would prefer we be ready and eager and willing when God begins to gather his people together and hope that he can use us to be a part of a welcoming committee and bring meals on wheels. I'll give them a heart of flesh, verse 20, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them. Galatians 5 tells us what the fruit of God's Spirit is. Love, joy, peace, faith, patience, kindness. So it's not good enough just to know God's way. you got to do it. Doesn't James say not to hear hearers only, but the doers? We could go to a lot of scriptures off of this. God says those are the ones that will be my people, and I will be their God. It isn't good enough to be in the church. It isn't good enough to know the Sabbath and the holy days, and the resurrections and the spirit in man, and all the things that we understand that make us different from the other religions. It isn't good enough to know the true doctrines and to have knowledge. If it isn't expressed in love, 1 Corinthians 13, it's worthless. It doesn't do a bit of good. Knowledge puffs up, and it can destroy. Because puffing up means pride and vanity and ego and what we think we understand. So it doesn't do any good unless we do it. If we do them, we'll be his people, and he will be our God. But... As for them whose heart walks after the heart of their detestable things and their abominations, I will recompense their way upon their own heads, says the eternal God. Some will simply not be willing to come out of the Babylonian wrong cultural society's way of thinking and acting. They just won't. And God says, if you don't, I'll bring it upon your own head. We're too weak, or we're too loving of it, just not willing to bite the bullet and make the changes. Ninety percent of the church will not. Even though God says clearly in Revelation 18, come out of her, my people, that you be not partakers of her sins and her plagues. And he echoes that in Jeremiah 50 and 51, Isaiah 48, many, many places. He talks about it. But most will not. Most will cling. And the recompense for that will come down on their heads. Thrown out of the pot to the sword. Verse 22. Then did the cherubims lift up their wings and the wheels beside them. And the glory of the God of Israel was over them above. Now, this chapter opened with the Spirit lifting Ezekiel up and showing him the east gate, which looked eastward, and he saw these men there who were creating mischief. And the wings of the cherubim lifted him above the previous scene. It wasn't at the gate anymore. And the glory of the eternal went up from the midst of the city, 
and stood upon the mountain which is on the east side of the city. In other words, the vision changes from the city, the church, and is removed away, away. Now, east of the city of Jerusalem was the Mount of Olives. He, he ascended to heaven from the Mount of Olives. He departed Jerusalem there. Zechariah 14.4 says he will return to the same spot from which he departed. He left the Jews. He said he would take all power from them and, giving it, and give it to someone else, namely the apostles and the church. But here this is an end time prophecy, so it's not dealing with the physical Jews. He took their power away when he left the first time. He gave it to the church. But this is the end time prophecy, and he says he is going to withdraw from the church and go a distance away. Now, we've read many other scriptures which give the same thing by saying he turned his face from us and so on. What's the same thing? <clears throat> but this is right there at the end when things are getting dramatic. The Caribs are here. It's not business as usual. Things have changed in Ezekiel's visions from what they were in Isaiah and Jeremiah, if you will. The glory of the eternal went up from the midst of the city, left the church, went up on the mountain on the east side. Afterwards, the Spirit took me up and brought me in a vision by the Spirit of God into Chaldea to them of the captive, captivity. So the vision that I had seen went up from me. So back in reality in Chaldea, he saw these things were about to happen, and then he woke up in Chaldea. Then I spoke to them of the captivity, all the things that the Eternal had showed me. So he saw these things in vision, and then he showed them to the people and wrote them down. The ones that they really have meaning for are us who live now, just as these things are about to begin to happen. And really, already are starting, but we haven't seen the dramatic surge from God's side. And we'll see a dramatic surge from Satan's side. Why did I pick the word surge? I guess because we're surging into Iraq with more people now. All right, I think we have time to get into chapter 12. <clears throat> we can take a deep breath and refocus and we'll go into chapter 12. That's quite an enlightening chapter, chapter 11, when you apply it to the church today and see what's happening just at the end time, isn't it? I've read that many, many times and I never really saw the whole picture. But there it is. The word of the eternal also came to me saying. So, in addition to what I just saw and what I just said, here's some more. Now, remember he had to lay on his side for 390 days and on his other side for 40 days. Uh, God uses Ezekiel in here several times as a type and a symbol to the church and to Israel. So he comes this time saying, Son of man, you dwell in the middle of a rebellious house. The church is rebellious. Remember in the commission he gave Ezekiel there in chapter 4, I think it is, he told him, I send you, or maybe it was chapter 2, wherever, wherever it is, right there at the beginning where he gives him his commission. 
He says, these are rebellious people, and they're really, really hard-headed. But I'll have to make your head harder than their head if you're going to get a message across at all, because they are a rebellious people. So he reiterates that here. You're in the midst of a rebellious house. Now, he's been talking about the church, right? The sanctuary, the temple of God. He hasn't switched that. Ezekiel says, you're even going to destroy the faithful remnant, chapter 11. So when he talks about a rebellious house here, he's not just talking to physical Israel. He's talking to the church first and foremost. That's the context. Which have eyes to see and see not. They have ears to hear and hear not. Now, the world at large in Israel doesn't have even eyes and ears to see and hear, do they? But it is a rebellious church which actually does have eyes. They have a certain amount of knowledge they've read. They've heard a lot of truth. And they don't see or hear because they are a rebellious house. Now, how can you say that of the church? They're still keeping the Sabbath and the holy days, more or less, aren't they? I mean, they may slip out head for the entertainment centers before sundown on the Sabbath, and they may go out to eat in the public on the Sabbath. But they still realize Saturday is the Sabbath. But they're rebellious. Well, they will not honor God's Sabbaths and His holy days from sundown to sundown, but have to fudge it a little. Or they go to the feast, and they know it's the Feast of Tabernacles, but not a whole lot of time is spent worshiping God. Most of it's entertaining ourselves, enjoying the physical. Not that we can't enjoy the physical of the feast, but what's the overall? And is the spiritual more important to us at the feast than the physical? The physical is only a type of the spiritual. And the spiritual is the main focus, or should be, Now, the ministry, which he addressed earlier, and I think still subject hasn't really changed, they're saying, this is what God is doing. This is what God is doing through me. I am preaching the gospel. I am sending out booklets and magazines and articles to convert and finish Herbert Armstrong's work. I haven't turned loose of anything Herbert Armstrong said. Some of them claim to adhere very closely to the things he said because he had the Philadelphia work and therefore we are following that and it makes us Philadelphians too. We're the Phillies. I tell you, everyone who says that is being talked to right here. That attitude is ungodly. And they will not listen to what the scriptures say about the church. They have their own view of what they think ought to be being done. <laughs> Herbert Armstrong knew better. The calling is finished. My work is done. Get the church ready. Most organizations have very little to do 
with truly getting the church ready and telling the people what needs to be said and what needs to be done. Most of them are still talking about numbers of people and how many have been called and how many magazines we're sending out and what a wonderful work we're doing and God is with us. And God is not with that. It is not what he said needs to be done right now. He is against that. If he's not aboard, he's against it. And I'll tell you, based on the Word of God, that we're reading right here, that anyone, any organization, and most of them are, who have that attitude and are doing that, are working against God. We'll read and see that more and more as we go on. Oh, Scriptures are here. They're not reading them. They're trying to do what our Herbert Armstrong did. God didn't remove that mantle. He finished the work he gave him to do. It wasn't for somebody else to pick up the mantle and go on. Besides that, who did he give it to? Everyone claims it seems he gave it to them. When? Where? You know, with Elijah, he gave it to Elisha. God dealt with Elisha. Herbert Armstrong didn't give it to anybody, as far as I can see. And if he did give it to Joseph the Koch, it was with misgivings. And I think he withdrew it at the last moment. And he didn't live past that. Because he saw through what was about to happen. So he didn't give it to anybody. It's up to us. To get into the book and find out what God wants. That's what Ezekiel's telling us. He says, you look at the church and you look at the leadership of the church and it's a rebellious house. And even though the word of God is here, they won't hear it, they won't see it. They won't pay any attention to it. Therefore, you son of man, in other words, since they're this way, I'm going to use you, Ezekiel, as an example. Prepare you stuff for removing, and remove by day in their sight. Now, we're talking here in the context about a captivity, and we'll see that a little later on as we go through this chapter. So, when you're about to go into captivity, you don't pack up the whole household, you know, the refrigerator and the dog and the cat and the extra car on the trailer behind you all. When you're about to go into captivity, and they... Soldiers are coming to get you. You grab whatever you can put on your back and go to try to escape. So he's saying, there's a captivity coming, and we'll see that in the context. Grab what you can and remove thy day in their sight. In other words, this is an example. You are to symbolize the church. So pack up a few things. Maybe they'll see something here. Do it so they can see it. And you shall remove from your place to another place in their sight. This is to be obvious. It may be they will consider, though they be, a rebellious house. So he says, Ezekiel, I'm picking you to gather a few things and move away. And maybe they'll listen. 
Maybe they'll see the symbolism. Let's continue this and get the whole story that God is laying out. Then shall you bring forth your stuff by day in their sight, as stuff for removing, and you shall go forth at evening in their sight, as they that go forth into captivity. Now, there were not street lights and lights on cars in those days. In fact, most people did not travel at night. They tried to find a safe place because thieves and robbers came out at night and it was not safe to travel generally at night. So what he's symbolizing here is a dangerous journey. Pack up your stuff in the day when they can see it and go at evening. It's a dangerous time. It also, I think, could mean that time is growing short. There's not much daylight left. The night is about to come, spiritually and physically upon this earth. But seek out, even at night. Now, in the evening, while it's still light enough for them to see your goal, because this is supposed to be an example for them. Dig through the wall in their sight and carry out thereby. Now, it's a lot easier to go out the gate, isn't it? But the gate may be being filled with your captors coming in. So when a captivity is coming, you try to find a way to safely get out. So if you see trouble coming, you dig a hole in the wall and try to sneak out. So he said, trouble's coming. Be a symbol of someone trying to sneak away from it. In their sight, verse 6, shall you bear it upon your shoulders and carry it forth in the twilight. You shall cover your face that you see not the ground, for I have sent you for a sign to the house of Israel. So he's telling Ezekiel, put some stuff on your back, dig a hole in the wall, go out in the twilight when it's getting dark, and put a blindfold on so you can't see where you're going. So he's saying the church is looking for a safe place, but they're blind, and they can't see where they're going. And even though they might try to find a safe place by digging through the wall and going out, as evening shadows come, they will not find safety. Let's see that as the Bible explains the Bible. And I did so as I was commanded. I brought forth my stuff by day, as stuff for captivity, and in the evening I dig through the wall with my hand. I brought it forth in the twilight, and I bear it upon my shoulder in their sight. Now what does God tell us to do? He says, leave the cities, go dwell in the field, and there you will be delivered. He tells, gather up your stuff and get out. Gather yourselves together, Zephaniah 2. And on and on it goes. We know quite a few scriptures along those lines. And we've done it in the sight of the church. And they think we're nuts. And we don't know where we're going. They can't see. Well, we'll find out who can see and who cannot see, won't we? We better be paying attention to these scriptures. So I did what they said. Bared on my shoulder in their sight. Verse 8. And in the morning came the word of the eternal to me, saying, so we're going to get an explanation here. Son of man, have not the house of Israel, the rebellious house, said to you, What are you doing out there? Why, why have you got that little bunch of stuff on your back and you're digging a hole in the wall? And why in the world 
do you have a blindfold on? What Ezekiel was doing looked absolutely stupid to the rest of the city. Say you to them, thus says the eternal God, this burden concerns the prince in Jerusalem and all the house of Israel that are among them. So the leaders and all the people in the city. And I think he broadens it here, not just the temple now or the church, but he broadens it because most of the church is going to go into the same captivity. 90% of it according to a lot of scriptures. So this concerns the whole city and the leadership thereof, the whole church, and in that sense the whole house of Israel, the whole nation. Say, I am your sign. In other words, what I'm doing that looks so stupid to you is a sign to you. Can you read a sign? Like as I have done, so shall it be done to them. They shall remove and go into captivity. They may try to hide. They try to dig through the wall instead of go through the gate, find a safe way, but they're going to be blind and they'll go in the wrong place and they'll wind up in captivity. And the prince that is among them shall bear upon his shoulder in the twilight and shall go forth. They shall dig through the wall to carry out thereby, <coughs> find a way of safety and escape. He shall cover his face that he see not the ground with his eyes. My net also will I spread upon him, and he shall be taken in my snare. And I will bring him to Babylon to the land of the Chaldeans. Yet shall he not see it, though he shall die there. Never will wake up, but will die there. Now, I believe America is Babylon today, but, he's, but Revelation 18 says, I believe it's 18, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. This current Babylon will go away, and a newer, newer, even bigger new world order, a bigger Babylon, will emerge. And that is the one that will take this Babylonian society that really is the people of Israel who have gone Babylonian into captivity. And you won't even see it coming. You're blindfolded. You have eyes you can't see. And I will scatter toward every wind all that are about him to help him. Anybody, anybody that would help Israel or the church is going to be scattered. There'll be no help in all his bands, and I will draw out the sword after them. Here's what he says next. And they shall know that I am the eternal. Same old lesson. Hard to get. Hard to get beyond our rebellion. Hard to get beyond the society we live in and the world that has been created for us by Satan and evil men, even in the church. But when this is all done, they'll know that God is God. When? When I shall scatter them among the nations and disperse them in the countries. When they wake up in slavery, as peons to the new world order, then they'll know. You know, if the whole church today were on the telephone listening to this sermon, they would think I'm nuts. This does not refer to me, they would say. I am a Philadelphian. I'm okay. 
He's got the wrong take. This is just about physical Israel. Well, why does he talk about the priests and the temple then? They don't want to hear it. They don't want to see it. They'll be blinded, and only a faithful remnant will find the way. Only a few God will call. They won't wake up until they're scattered among the nations, making China Mark goodies for the rest of the world. Then when they'll wake up. Our people, 90% of the church, are the future Chinese and Bangladesh workers. That's where we're headed. Verse 16, but I will leave a few men of them from the sword and from the famine and from the pestilence. Go back to chapter 5, 10%, and then take some of those and throw them in the fire. That they may declare all their abominations among the heathen where they come. And they shall know that I am the eternal. God is going to save a few back. And they will carry the message. They will do the end time work. And speaking of the latter temple the two witnesses and the church that is with them and behind them that will do it. Matthew twenty four fourteen. This gospel shall be preached around the world and then shall the end come. And you'll see an abomination set up and then is the time to flee to safety. I believe this nation will be destroyed after we go into Iran, divided into four pieces, and one of those four horns that is the ruler of those one of those four pieces will come after the church. Daniel 8. But the church will go out to meet the Assyrian when he comes into the land and the message will begin to go out. Now have we seen the sword, the famine, and the pestilence? Spiritually we've seen it to some degree. We haven't physically seen it come on this nation. Now, all those who are trying to do the work of God right now, as they call it, are preaching that the famine of the pestilence and the sword have not come. Now, this seems to indicate to me that the sword, the famine, and the pestilence is going to come, and then you go out and tell them what's going on and declare their abominations among the heathen. So it's a message that comes afterward, not before. And if you listen to them, they're still not giving this kind of message. They're still trying to do a calling with friendly magazines and broadcasts that don't give the message of Ezekiel. And it's falling flat, and very, very few are being called. Very few. Verse 17, Moreover, the word of the eternal came to me, saying, Son of man, eat your bread with quaking, and drink your water with trembling and with carefulness. And say to the people of the land, Thus says the eternal God of the inhabitants of Jerusalem and of the land of Israel, the church and the world, They shall eat their bread with carefulness and drink their water with astonishment, that her land may be desolate from all that is therein, because of the violence of all them that dwell therein. And the cities that are inhabited shall be laid waste, and the land shall be desolate. will be taken into captivity, and you shall know 
that I am the Eternal. The word of the Eternal came to me saying, Son of man, what is that proverb that you have in the land of Israel saying, the days are prolonged and every vision fails? All those who prophesy destruction, bad are all false prophets. We've been hearing that now for 60 years. Isn't going to happen. We still have time left. We've got time to finish the work. America's not in trouble. Most Americans don't think we're in trouble. They have it. Not a clue of what's going on. The church or the world. Oh, yeah, we've heard it before. Wolf, wolf, wolf. Okay. Tell them, therefore, thus says the eternal God, I will make this proverb to cease, and they shall no more use it as a proverb in Israel, but say to them, the days are at hand. It's close. Have some of you relaxed a little bit after we did that Jubilee thing and showed that the Jubilee could come in 2026, 2027, somewhere along there, and thought, well, we got quite a while left. Don't you believe it? <clears throat> Time will be cut short. This destruction will come much sooner than that. There may be a period of time after America is divided in which we can live in towns without walls with much men and cattle with God's protection and be an example to the world as Ezekiel is an example to Israel and to the church. That may go on for a few years. So the final end of this may be down the road some. But in the meantime, if we're obedient, we're going to be given deer's feet and elk legs and we'll hear and see again. And the lame will walk. And God will bless his people. And that may go on for some years of you. And we'll live in peace, plenty, and prosperity before one of the four rulers of the divisions of this nation come down on the church and the abomination of desolation is set up and we have to flee for our very lives. So don't think it's still 15 or 20 years off when this comes to pass. I don't think it's that long. Christ might not return until 2026 or 27, even though the time, it says, will be cut somewhat short. We don't know how short. But that doesn't mean all this trouble isn't going to come a lot sooner than that. And I think it will. Why is he wasting space in the Bible? If he's not saying, when you see all these things beginning to happen, you see the end of the age, you see the church falling apart and being scattered, that's the time not to say, let's build houses and dwell in them safely. We'll be secure for X number of years now. Don't say we're safely in the church. We won't be thrown in the fire. God says, I'm going to throw you out of the pot. And your sense of security is going to be lost. And if you say it's a long time, think again. When you see these things coming, you know the days are at hand. 
Verse 24, For there shall no more be any vain vision or flattering divination within the house of Israel, saying, We're okay. What's a flattering divination? I see the future, and we're okay. We flatter ourselves. We're the Phillies. We'll be fine. Think again. We have time to finish the work. Got years. Let's build colleges. Let's build schools. Don't think so. There will be no more any vain vision or flattering divination within the house of Israel. For I am the Eternal. I will speak. And the word that I shall speak shall come to pass. It shall be no more prolonged. Remember where it said there will be no more the echoing of the hills and the mountains. It will be the real thing. It shall be no more prolonged, for in your days, O rebellious house, will I say the world, word and will perform it, says the eternal God. We are the end time generation. God says this, this generation will not pass before these things happen. We're it. This is it. And we're getting old, most of us. Again, the word of the eternal came to me, saying, Son of man, behold, they of the house of Israel say, the vision that he sees is for many days to come. This stuff that Ezekiel wrote, I've been there for thousands of years. Ezekiel's been in the Bible a long time. This is for many years. Don't worry about it. Hey, relax. He prophesies of the times that are far off. Therefore say to them, they got that attitude, thus says the eternal God, there shall none of my words be prolonged anymore. But the word which I have spoken shall be done, says the eternal God. These things we've read about today are going to come to pass, and they are going to come to pass soon upon this generation, the church, this church, God's church. This nation is going into captivity very soon, and most of the church is going with it. If we will get rid of all parts and vestiges of the society so that God can see the difference. And he can see that we sigh and cry against the abominations of this age and culture and put it away from us and will obey him. He will give us a heart of flesh, tenderness, humility, and meekness rather than the rebellion that most of the church has today. And he will save us out of it. We don't have blinders on, brethren. We have a way of escape. We don't have to dig through a wall with a blindfold on. God is showing us the truth because we are listening to His Word. Now, when you know it's coming and you recognize that there is a way of escape, why not take it? Why will you die, O Israel? 